The next day, I thought I could make a real difference, like Kendall Jenner in that ad where she stops riots by serving Pepsi. There are many significant firsts in life. First day of school, first job, first love, and also the first time you wear tie-dye. All very special. But for an author, there is nothing more momentous than your first novel. This is a Boundless Book Club, and today we're talking about the debuts you need to know. I'm Andrea. I'm Annabelle. And also joining us soon is one of our favourites and critics' favourites, the wonderful Joe Browning-Rowe, author of A Terrible Kindness. Also with us today is our colleague Tamriz Inam. Welcome back, Tamriz. Hi, nice to be here today. We paid her to say that. (laughs) I think the novel that you are going to tell us about today, Tamriz, is not only a debut novel, but it also features a bunch of firsts. Is that right, Tamriz? Yeah, so I'm um, pitching uh, Bonnie Gomez's debut novel, Lessons in Chemistry. And it's honestly one of the best books I've read in a while. I really enjoyed it. I actually listened to the audiobook, which is also fantastic. And in terms of the first, the book is set in the 1960s. So our... Uh, protagonist Elizabeth Zott is breaking the mold for a lot of things that women could have done at the time. Um, you know, she's a scientist, one of the only uh, research scientists in the institute where she is working. Um, she's passionate about chemistry, but nobody seems to take her seriously as a scientist because she's a woman. And then inadvertently, she becomes the star of a cooking show. Uh, but it's not your usual cooking show. She brings chemistry into cooking. So it's not salt, it's sodium chloride, it's not vinegar, it's acetic acid and all of this kind of stuff that she brings to the show. And surprisingly, the show becomes a hit. So a really, really interesting book. Really enjoyed it. What's a tone like in your book? You know, when I was reading this, I was reminded of, um, have you read Where Do You Go, Bernadette? She's a scientist as well. And it's this The book is funny, but the protagonist herself isn't funny. You know, she's very serious. And Elizabeth Zott is very serious on her show as well. She talks about cooking and she wants people to take cooking seriously. She says, you know, women need to take themselves seriously. Um, So it has that kind of tone. And also um, people have compared it to The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel just because of the comedy, but also its period setting. And it also reminded me of Eleanor Oliphant is completely fine, just because there's so much like bad stuff that happens to Elizabeth. But ultimately, the book is still really lighthearted and um, it's funny. And the character herself just has this deadpan sort of humor. You know, she's not trying to be funny. It's just because a lot of the stuff that seems so obvious to her or she thinks you know things should be a certain way everybody around her is baffled by it you know because she thinks you know being a female scientist she should be taken seriously but everybody else 
just wants her to make cups of coffee or stuff. You know, so there's a lot of humor that comes from those situations. I listened to the interview after the audiobook. Pandora Sykes interviews Bonnie Gomez. In the interview, she talks about how she sent out the book to her agent. And when it went to the publishers, there was a bidding war. And she didn't know which offer to choose from because one offer was better than, you know, the next offer. So that's really, really exciting for a debut author. That's kind of the dream scenario, isn't it? Like all these people fighting over you with with increasing amounts of money. What, what was she doing before? So this is her debut novel. Like what's her background? Where Where's Bonnie Garmas come from? Yeah, that's so interesting. You know, she really reminded me of Alka Joshi, who was at our Emirates Lit Fest this year and also on the Boundless Book Club podcast. And the thing she had said to us was, that she had had a career in copywriting and in copywriting and copy editing, you become so adept at telling complex stories in really, really short, uh, you know, in a short space of time and words. And so Bonnie Gomez has the same background. She's been, you know, a copywriter and editor. And it's really interesting that Alka Joshi also published her first novel at the age of, I think, 62. And Bonnie Gomez is very similar in age, very similar in background. So it's almost like you bring this whole lifelong career to your writing and it somehow works. That's fantastic. And what a dream to just write your debut novel and having a bidding war for it. The book that that I want to recommend today, I read an interview with the author where she said, I didn't want to waste my time on writing something that nobody would pay me for. So I wrote one chapter and sent it out and then I got a contract. Wow. So what what book is this? The book I would like to recommend is How to Kill Your Family by Bella Mackey. And, you know, in the last episode with Dr. Tashiro, we spoke about how, you know, humans, we have wish lists for our perfect partner. And I think we probably also have wish lists for our perfect book. And I think if this book was on a dating app, if there was a dating app for books, I would swipe right for the title, but also for the plot which is super fresh and lots of momentum. And it's got like the writing of a wrong, but in a really extreme way. It's got strong and really judgmental female protagonist who's a narrator, which is fun. And it's got lots of sentences and paragraphs that will make you snort out loud in public, which is a winner. Absolutely. Yes. If any of those are on your wish lists, please read this immediately. Um, I listened to it and I listened to, I got to one point where I actually paused the audio to write down the quote that I wanted to share with you, but I'll get to that. This is from the blurb, just for people who haven't heard about it before. The blurb says, they say you can't choose your family, but you can kill them. Meet Grace Barnard, daughter, sister, serial killer. Grace has lost everything and she will stop at nothing to get revenge. So in this revenge comedy slash family drama slash slasher, Grace is our psychopath hero. And she does have quite a few things in common with Villanelle from Killing Eve, where like, you know, she is completely cracked, but we still kind of want her to succeed. So, so you know, from the start that she has, in fact, like she is a serial killer. She has, she has killed her family. I mean, yeah, she, you know that she is on the warpath. Like everything, there are no spoilers here because it's in the title. Like she, she's telling her story. It's about why, not, not how. 
It's a little bit of a little bit of both. So Grace's backstory is Grace's mum was very young, very beautiful, a model in London, meets this older man, has a brief relationship, and then he drops her as soon as she discovers that she's pregnant. And then when Grace is 13, having never met her dad, her mum passes away and she finds out that her dad, who's been missing in action forever, is a millionaire who rejected her dying mother's pleas for help. So Grace makes a vow that when she is older and able, she's going to seek vengeance. And then as an adult, as it says in the title, she sets about killing every member of this family, from the grandparents who tried to gatekeep and make sure that their son wasn't troubled by any illegitimate children, to a kinky uncle, to... Um, an influencer half-sister. Each one is disturbing and delightful in strange ways. And it's peppered with little political commentary as well, like she says about her, her father, who would be left to last. How awful it must be to know in your bones that those around you were being picked off one by one and to realize that therefore you must be next. And even worse, it seems like no one's listening to him. A terrible thing for a powerful white man to experience. So when you were reading it, did you feel empathy for her as a character? Because that's a really tough one, right? When you have this sociopath, serial killer, and at the same time, you feel empathy for the protagonist. I remember all the criticism of, you remember the series, You, when it came out, that, you know, maybe they make the protagonist who's actually a criminal seem like this lovable character. Yeah. So I feel like they're slightly different in that the protagonist in you, antagonist, protagonist, main character, I'm not sure where we would place him, but you only feel empathy for him to a point and then that changes. Whereas in this, my allegiance doesn't switch really. And I don't know if it's so much that you feel empathy for her as in like, I mean, you like a righteous cause, right? <laughs> watching, watching her grandparents in a restaurant in Marbella, they are not nice people, these people. She says, and this is the bit that I stopped to write down because it made me snort. Steak and fries for the whole party. It must be the only thing on the menu they go for. Steak and fries. Never straying into foreign territory. Never doing anything different. Being small, turning nasty. And I got all that just from steak. Imagine what I could learn from their bookshelves. Only kidding. They won't have any books in their house. <laughs> so good. Oh, I, I mean, I want you both to read this right now. I, I'm, I'm sold. I'd like to know what you brought us today, Annabelle. Uh, something quite different, actually. Um, so this was something that was, it's not even out yet, comes out in July. Um, and it's a debut, obviously, because that's the theme of what we're talking about. And it was pitched to us at London Book Fair this year. And a name that, you know, we, we hadn't heard of before. And it was just the title, I think, that caught our eye. And it came through and I started reading it. And I just thought, this is so interesting and so different. And I cannot wait to see what this guy writes next. It's called Teen Couple Have Fun Outdoors. Great title. Uh, it's by Aravind Jayan, and he's only 25 years old. He's from Kerala, and that's where the book is set as well. 
Um, and if you're interested, so he's had shorter pieces published before, often the case with a lot of uh, debut novelists. Um, and you can read his story, The Current Climate, online as well, which was shortlisted for the 2021 Commonwealth Short Story Prize, which is kind of a big deal. So you can feel if you you know, like his writing before you try Teen Couple, Have Fun Outdoors when it comes out in July. And the title refers to a scandal that kickstarts a lot of family drama and well-meaning neighborly and familial concern. It's set uh, mostly in Trivandrum in Kerala. Young, so young man Srinath and girlfriend Anita have some fun outdoors. I don't think I need to go any further when I talk about that. And a few years later, they find that someone has basically taken a video of them without them knowing and uploaded it to a series of explicit websites. So first of all, just imagine for the couple and individually for a man and a young woman, what that would feel like as an invasion of privacy. So that's one level. But funnily enough, that doesn't become the central theme of the story, the story is concerned with everyone, how it impacts everyone else really. And the tension that that creates within the family, for the couple as well, and their friends. Um, and kind of lines are sort of drawn between Srinath and his girlfriend and, and his friends who sort of get that they've been taken advantage of and they're just trying to move past it and they don't see that they've done anything wrong whatsoever. And all of kind of the older generation, his parents included, that essentially like kick him out of the house and they just, they cannot see eye to eye on any of this. No one wants to talk to each other. No one can have a prolonged conversation that lasts longer than an angry sentence and then doors being slammed in faces. And it's such a frustrating read, but it's written really warmly. It's written really accessibly. And he has such a keen eye for, for language, for the way people like well-meaning aunties say things, but mean something else. Um, it's really well done. So the they're in their early 20s when this happens to them. Um, and the narrator of the story, and I don't think you ever find out his actual name um, in, in the book at all, but he's narrating it um, is Srinath's younger brother and he ends up becoming the middleman between like his parents um, Anita's family and Srinath and Anita and he gets absolutely no thanks for it and it's really frustrating to see how it impacts this well-meaning young man it completely strains the relationship he has with his brother the relationship he has with his parents and um, I don't want to give too much away, but it's it's not really about what happens. It's how it happens. It's about the characters. It's about sex. It's about morality. And it's about what older people think are better for the younger generation. It's um, about Indian society as well. Um, it's frustrating from start to finish, but it's also just so well observed. It, it feels like you've just got a snapshot into these family lives. And I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, I walked into a room and I saw them all sitting there because they, they feel so real. And it's only about 200 pages as well. I read this in one sitting, inhaled it. That sounds incredible. I love family dramas. And this one raises some really interesting questions. 
you know, and especially that sort of intergenerational struggle that we're seeing a lot of in in this part of the world, like, you know, India, Pakistan, and, you know, where, where things are changing, especially with rising education levels, with the rising middle class, with women coming out into the workforce more and more. And it's creating this tension between what's acceptable, what's not acceptable, what makes you a good boy and a good girl, you know, so it sounds like a really interesting read. Yeah, it's um it was it was great. It was just something completely different and yeah, no, I absolutely loved it. When I when I talk about some of the funnier moments that really lift your frustration when you're reading this, there was one bit that I wanted to read where um Anita's mother is really just breathing down the necks of of the narrator's family. Um you know, she's basically saying, you know, you need to talk to your son, you need to sort this out. And she's hanging around their house every single day parked outside in this car and the narrator once again this middleman just trying to help everyone get along he goes outside he says the next day I thought I could make a real difference like Kendall Jenner in that ad where she stops riots by serving Pepsi I took a cup of tea and went over to Anita's mother she sat in her car I said auntie such things don't matter as much as you think they do people simply don't care Do you know what all is going on in the world at this very minute? Today in Agra, a 30-year-old man, she rolled up the windows and looked straight ahead. (laughs) It sounds so good. Um, It sounds incredibly modern as well, I have to say. Yeah, it's it's very well done. There's also a bit, I'm not really spoiling anything here, but when the video gets out, there's a moment as well where the young couple try and do something with that and, and sort of own the narrative. And that has in an interesting outcome and there's all sorts of um discussion about the facebook comments and the comments on the video and it, it's also about the internet as well and about how people behave so yeah that's uh, teen couple have fun outdoors okay so i think i have to add both of those books to my tbr and now i think it's time that we have a chat to joe rowe So Joe, in your day job, you've been helping probably hundreds of aspiring writers find and hone their stories. And now your first novel, A Terrible Kindness, is not only a well-received literary novel, but also a Sunday Times top 10 bestseller. Congratulations. Thank you. How long were you working on this story alongside your job? Um, Has this been a long journey or has it been quite straightforward? No, it's definitely been a long journey and not straightforward. I did some really crucial interviews um, with embalmers who'd been at the Aberfan disaster. And that was really, really important. And I did that quite a long time ago. And it just sat with me and I mulled it over because I was working on a different project. Once I actually started writing this, I was quite disciplined because there was something in me that thought, you know, I was well into my 50s. And I thought, if I seriously want to be a novelist, I've got to be able to do this quicker <laughs> so um because I've been working on something else for about 10 years so I did two hours a day every day six days a week um and it is it, it's not for everybody and everyone has to find their own way but for me it got the words down and it and so I think it took me between two and a half to three years to get to a finished um a finished draft which to me it's I don't think that's too bad although to some other people it will sound a long time I think I think that's compared to some people we've been speaking to. I think that's fairly speedy, actually. Yeah, yeah. Could you tell us a little bit about William and and where the story came from? Yes, 
I think it does feel like William, once he was there in my imagination, he felt quite fully formed. Um, I think that when I spoke to the two embalmers who'd went, the first one I'd spoken to had been in his mid-30s. He coordinated all the efforts. The second person I spoke to had gone as a very young man, 20, even maybe 19, straight from his honeymoon. And he. it was really interesting because he said to me that, although obviously it was awful and as he was telling me the story of it he was he was crying but he said he's also nevertheless cocooned in this sort of feeling of being in love you know fresh back from his honeymoon and he can't separate the two and that led me to think what if somebody went already with not this lovely cocoon but actually a sense of fracture and loss and how how might that impact them um and so I think that's where the idea of William being a very young man full of promise full of hope but actually with his own sense of loss came and I can't quite remember when he became a chorister at Cambridge. I just knew that I was fascinated by the choristers that I, I hear and see in Cambridge. But I just can't pin a moment when when that happened for me. What's the response been from people considering the the subject matter? And going into it, was there any were you worried at any point about talking about something that is so close to home for some people? Um yes. And Obviously, with every sentence I wrote, I was trying to do it with respect for the people of Aberfan. But I, I always point out that my starting point wasn't to tell the story about Aberfan. It was coming across the article written by the guy who had coordinated these efforts. And I was just blown away by the heroicism and kindness that some people's professions call on them. And just what they, you know, it was it was them that I was I was sort of transfixed by, and that's what drove my story. And so, whilst I could have made up um, a fictitious disaster, it felt it would have made the story less powerful. The story was I wanted to do to write a story that would honour what they did um, and honour the people of Aberfan. And so, yes, I knew it was it was potentially tricky, but I just tried really hard to do it with respect um, and. So far, the people from Wales that I've spoken to um, have been, you know, that they haven't had an issue with me doing that. The feedback I've had so far has been positive. Was there anything that made you think that now was the right time for this story? I think it was more that enough time had passed. Um, and when I first met with the the, the initial um Embalmer, who I spoke to, we met at the airport. He lived in in um, Belfast, and so I flew out, and we just sat in the the airport cafe. And he did say initially to me, "You should leave this well alone." And I thought, fair enough, because that was part of the reason I wanted to speak to him. But then he told me he'd never spoken to anyone about what he'd done, anyone in the intervening fifty odd years. And he started talking, and four and a half hours later, when he stopped talking, he just said perhaps this is a story that could be told. And I and also when I went to Aberfan at some, I think it was the 50th anniversary, they had a little display in their library and um, there was no mention of the embalmers. And you can completely understand it because nobody really wanted to think about what they had to do and then the invisibility of their task was its kindness really. But I felt, I, th- I felt enough time had come. And I have had some people in Aberfan say, thanking me, saying they'd never thought about what they'd ha- those embalmers had had to do. So I think it was more feeling that there's en- enough time has gone. That's not to um, underestimate the pain that's still there. One of the things that I loved about it was the beautiful 
quite heartbreaking but beautiful moment particularly between Betty who's and it's so funny because she's saying look I'm staying with my sister-in-law because my my house is is completely like buried and I can't bear to stay in that house any longer I need to do something I have to help and what she ends up helping with is you know preparing preparing the bodies with William and I thought that that was so beautifully done so not really a question there just a thank you for writing it really well, the, there was a, a woman who did arrive at the mortuary saying that, that she just needed to do something, let her help. So so a lot of the a lot of these moments were triggered by something that actually happened. But then I, you know, I, I wrote as I as I felt appropriate. I know your author biography mentions that you grew up in a crematorium. Do you think you could tell us about this, these circumstances and and the experience that might have filtered into the story? Yes. So I, um, I, when I was one year old um, until I was 12 years old, I lived in the grounds of a crematorium in Birmingham. And that was because my dad was the superintendent of the crematorium and there was a small house that came with the job. So, so it seemed incredibly normal to me just to see funeral processions every 20 minutes, you know, going past our kitchen window. Um, and um, and I didn't, we didn't go get involved very much down there, obviously, but at the weekends we went down there and we learned to skate in the crematory because it was this enormous big space with no furniture and tiles. So it was a really good place to learn. And we played in the grounds once the gates were shut. And I think that um, I didn't think anything of it, really. Once I'd left, I'd left. And I didn't really tell people that that's where I'd grown up because it just I just didn't think it was interesting. And then when I went to UEA to do my master's in creative writing, um, I was with W.G. Sabolt was my tutor, the term that he died, actually. And um, anyone who knows his work knows he's fascinated with graveyards and with death. And when I just slipped out casually that that's where I'd grown up, I mean, the look on his face and and quite a few people in the group just said, oh, my gosh, you know, that gives you such a an interesting perspective on death. And, you know, so so that was kind of the first time that I thought I'd always thought my upbringing was deeply dull and boring and isolated. And then that gave me pause for thought that maybe it might, you know, give me some material. But then I think when I read the accounts of the embalmers, some people would have been a bit, oh, I don't want to go there. But for me, there was a feeling of it's coming home. And I, I was, I already had an innate respect for people in the, in the undertaking industry, huge respect. So I think that helped me just to think, no, I can, I can have a go at this. I was wondering about um, what this has been like for you, just the experience of, of the success of this. Um, are you enjoying the moment? I am. I'm really enjoying the moment. I've been waiting a long time. And I think, um, I think that for me, I, I realised because I, I signed with Faber, which was just like a dream to sign with Faber, <laughs> and it was a preempt. So they really wanted me, and other people wanted me as well, and it was just amazing. But the moment when I just thought, actually, my wildest dreams had, had genuinely just to be published. That was as far as they'd gone because when when I then found out it was being translated into other languages, I mean, it was like you know, absolutely mind blowing. Um, to know that there were really good translators in other languages pouring over my story. Um, and then, and then we, um, you know, it's going to be adapted for television as well. So it is like, I've just had so many layers of icing on the cake. I, you know, can't get my teeth through it, <laughs> but no, I, I am enjoying it. And I love doing book events and festivals because fundamentally, um, you know it, you know, you don't have to prepare. It's all in, it's all in you and you, you know, your material. Um, I did have a funny moment when I was in Cardiff doing a book event and um, 
I met an ex-boyfriend who I literally hadn't seen for 40 years. <laughs> so um, he was at the end of the signing queue. So you do sometimes have moments of thinking, oh my gosh, you don't quite know what's going to happen when you turn up for things, but it's all been good. So yeah, it's a dream come true. So we've been talking about debut novels and it made me wonder, um, while A Terrible Kindness is your debut novel, is do you have like a folder on your computer full of other first drafts that have been abandoned on the path to, to this one? Um, I've got one that I worked on for a long time. Um, and I have, I have actually got the shaggy first draft to my next novel done. And I'm now um, sort of tidying it up. Uh, and that's a big job. That sounds too small. I'm doing a lot of work on it, hoping to give it to my agent at about Christmas. So I have been working on that. And that does pull on some of the material that I'd used in another draft but it's it's dramatically different so that and that is it is I do find it hard I'm trying really hard to do my two hours a day again six days a week but my attention span is not what it was so I'm really trying to train it back but I haven't got I haven't got lots and lots of other other attempts but just one that I I just can't quite let go of so I'm just repurposing it dramatically Especially with the debut coming out, don't you? You have to essentially become a sort of social media manager, don't you? Yes, and and I'm, I'm eternally grateful to um, my published publicist at Faber did say to me, "You've done the work. You've written the book. We're going to be doing this, and if you want to join in, that's great." But there's no doubt about it; it does help. Um, so Twitter, I was already conversant with and felt fairly at home. Instagram, a whole new world, <laughs> and I've had many a nervous moment of doing live Instagram things and not being able to get on. And I can see them, but they can't see me and oh gosh you know that's been quite nerve-wracking but a good learning curve but I think very much what I need to do which I've said so I need to take my Twitter and Instagram and put it on an iPad and put the iPad in a different room and just go and check in on it rather than having it pinging up every moment on my phone so I think I know that's the answer but I haven't quite got around to doing it yet that's like very good life advice yes I hope so (laughs) I wondered because of all of the teaching you've seen other writers work you've you've had to advise other people with different ways of working you've gone through this yourself do you think that there is a one size fits all piece of advice that you can give to people who are in a similar situation where they really want to write something yeah i think i think the big piece of advice is um and anyone who's done a course that i've done there's quite a lot of people in dubai who i have taught is that you are the best thing you can bring to your writing because no one else can write what you can write. I mean, that's a fact. No one else can sit down and write what you can write. So it's about learning to to listen to yourself and trust yourself and then just work your socks off at honing the craft of how to write what you've got inside you well. And there's no, there aren't shortcuts to that. So you, yeah, I do think you have to be prepared to put the hours in, but it's trusting that you are the, you are the best thing you've got and nobody else is, is like you. You're utterly unique. <laughs> but also, of course, you know, there's no guarantee that you'll be published, but you absolutely won't if you don't try, you know. So you just have to turn up and do it and keep turning up. Solid advice. But also I think that that thing about writing practice, you know, I've been banging on, well, I've said that I do two hours a day. I absolutely know that doesn't work for everyone. And the only way to find out what does work is sadly by finding out what doesn't work. So you have to find these these sort of these dead ends. You have to think this is moving forward. I am progressing because I'm finding what works for me. And, you know, listening to what other authors do is great because it gives you possibilities. And I, I think I heard 
it was I heard um, Zadie Smith saying that she every day she starts by editing what she did the day before and then moves on to the new stuff. And I remember thinking, well, that that sounds good. And I and I have done that and that works for me. But again, I know for some people, they just need to go all the way through and just splurge and then go back and edit. For me, I would find the mess of it too overwhelming. But for others to constantly go back and tidy up doesn't work. So you just have to find out what works for you. And I think because I was an editor for 12 years, that probably affects my mindset as well over that process. That is uh, all we have time for. Thank you so much for joining us, Joe. Thank you both. Really nice to see you. It's been such a pleasure to speak with you. Um, a Terrible Kindness is available now from all good bookshops. And we'll be back again in two weeks with some books about myths, legends and fairy tales. Mm-hmm.